You're listening to the Public Circle Podcast. My name is Adam Olson. I'm the host and producer of this podcast. I'm also the MLA for the BC Legislative Assembly for the riding of Saanich North and the Islands. Welcome back or welcome to the podcast if this is the first time that you are listening to it. With me today is Dr. Sylvia Olson. Sylvia is my mother, if you're wondering about the last name. We're going to be talking about on-reserve housing in Canada. Uh, Sylvia married into Sartlip in 1972, and she lived on-reserve for more than 30 years. She's worked in on-reserve housing for 20 years and did her PhD work in the history of on-reserve housing in Canada. She continues to work in community, but is now more focused on the big picture. She works for the Assembly of First Nations Chiefs Housing Committee. And in British Columbia, she's working with the BC First Nations Housing and Infrastructure Council. So, welcome. Thank you. Uh, We are going to have about a half-hour conversation here about the history of on-reserve housing, and I recognize that it goes back a long, long way, and it's one of those... One of those Canadian, truly Canadian stories, I'd say. But where does it start for you? What, why on reserve housing? Those are two questions. Why and where does it start? Um, so I'll start with the why, if you can remember to get back to the where did it start. Uh, as you said, I was, I was 17 when I moved onto the reserve, and I was a middle class, and in those days, white girl, that's what I was called. And um, people often ask me, uh, oh, so... Um, so you must really want to help. You must really want to help on reserve housing. And, and I have, I'm, I'm older now, um, and, and my answer to that is no. I, I really hope I don't hinder. I really hope I don't hinder. But I am not actually in this to help. I am in it, and nor am I in it as an ally or as a witness. I am actually in it from, um, from my perspective of, of, of being that white girl. So if you can imagine in 1972 a white girl moving onto a reserve from middle-class Canada um, and into the housing, which is the piece that a lot of us know about on reserves visually, um, it was astounding. It was an astounding, life-shattering, life-altering experience for me. And who I am today is very much wrapped around that experience with housing on reserve. So to get back to why I say I'm not helping or I'm not an ally. My biggest question was defined when I um, went back to school late in life to do a PhD on the history of on-reserve housing. And it was like, okay, what's your question? What, what, what's your intellectual question? And, and PhDs, uh, you really want to be really narrow, really specific, and have some really uh, astounding question. And my question could not get past, what the hell, Canada? Now, that sounds crass, but that was my question. How, Canada, did this come to be? Um, how, Canada, did it get perpetuated for so long? And how, Canada, now in the 21st century, are we still struggling with it? And those were my intellectual questions. They're my emotional questions. Uh, they're my family questions. And they're why I'm here. They're why I'm here, because I think that those questions uh, are really worth answering as a Canadian. And um, I hope, um, not, to, not to be coy, but I hope that that helps. Well, it's crass, because the situation is rather crass. Uh, I've lived 
Uh, I lived in on-reserve housing. I've lived on-reserve my entire life. Um, born there, brought home there a couple weeks out. You know, I think you remember that time. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the questions, uh, it often says, people often say to me, they say, don't blame me for something that my grandfather did. Like, I, I'm not going to wear that. I'm not going to be the person that is to blame for that. And my, my response has always been, well, we are responsible for what we do with the information that we have. We know the situation is the way it is. Now, what are we going to do about it? And that's really, you know, I, I think that's really kind of where you went from what you saw to, okay, now later in life as you're becoming an academic, what are you going to do with that? One of the things that I find fascinating is that everyone's response to you about the academic work that you've done, it's like, no one's ever done this before. Can you, you know, can you believe that no one's ever really done a critical analysis, a critical look? All the housing people that I've talked to, they're like, this is groundbreaking work. Well, we've been doing housing on reserves for the last hundred and, I mean, we've got the history of it on a big, long piece of paper on the floor of the office here. I mean, it's, it's a century old. It is. Um, um, when, I, when you get back to the question of where did it start, I'm going to start at about the 30s. So I'm going to look at about 80 years. I'm not going to hold even Canada responsible for it other than that. Other people can, but I, do, I won't. But um, so that is the question, wasn't it, when I went to universities is why? Why is this a topic that... Um, it, it actually is one of Canada's most distressing social problems. It is a blight. It's one of the uh, worst blights on Canada's reputation internationally. The uh, human rights uh, part of it is always just, um, I, I, think some, it, I think it goes something like Canada is sixth or seventh uh, in terms of the, um, you know, the best places to live in the world. I think they're about sixth or seventh. Sometimes they get up there one or two or three. But on reserves, it's like 69th. So when we're talking, and, and a lot of us get very appalled at the idea of the, of the gap between the rich and the poor, um, the, the question is, and you're right, um, why hasn't somebody, why hasn't somebody uh, really spent a lot of time intellectually um, uh, in the public on saying that that's the case and what, what, what is, they're asking Canada, what are you doing about it? What's interesting is I remember you ta talking to me about that question, you know, as, as, your, as your supervisors are saying, okay, Sylvia, tell me what is your, what's your question? And uh, we had a conversation about this and you didn't know what your question was. So the, I guess the first bit of research is to go start digging around to find out what's been done. And I, rem I remember that, that conversation yeah. that we had, which was, there's nothing been done. I mean, yeah. it's, it's basically the, the same as my last question, which is you basically found a dearth of, yeah. of, of knowledge on this, or, or at least there was files, but they, none of them, no one had put them together. So what, yes, you're right. And actually it was you that said, okay, mom. Um, and in that conversation, that's who I was, um, with you, okay, mom, I can hear that you're going to have to go back and uh, write the history of this thing. I can hear that coming. So it was, and then, and then when you said that to me, it was like, oh, oh, uh, yes, I think I do. Uh, so architectural students, 
do some work on this from an architectural point of view. Hmm. Some health students are looking at um, housing as a health indicator. Um, the housing, I mean, the architecture, health. So some political science students bring housing in. And currently, I started my PhD 10 years ago, but currently it is becoming more um, uh, popular, if, if, if you can say that. But in terms of really interrogating it as it is for what it is, uh, it, it, 10 years ago there was an incredible dearth of exactly like you said, of uh, information out there. Now what there is, uh, First Nations people living on the reserve, like yourself, you might say, oh my gosh, we've been studied to death. But those are government reports. Now there are those. But anybody who is thinking about a topic does not depend on their information on government reports. It's a very, very particular kind of information you get from that and not one that tells a fulsome story. So as you're starting to bring these government reports together, because this was another piece that I remember um, you telling me, which was I'm finding chiefs writing the, the federal government in the 1920s, in the 1930s, in the 1940s, in the 1950s, in the 1960s, in the 1970s, in the 1980s. Stop, stop, stop. I know, exactly. Every single decade saying exactly the same thing. Government reports reporting exactly the same outcomes. Now, I I, I rattled off those decades on purpose. Yeah. Uh, It is a depressing story to, to... to write. It is because, uh, in fact, I felt sick to my stomach uh, pretty much every morning because I write in the morning, uh, early in the morning, and it's, it's, it's not a nice thing to, to wake up to. Um, and it is, the, the story changes a bit from decade to decade because, of course, it does. It, it, the, the circumstances change. But the recurring story is that government is going to fix this that, and I'm going to say Indians, Aboriginal people, First Nations, Indigenous, whatever, it, they are called along the historical timeline. The inference, not even the inference, but the, the basic belief is that they don't know how to house themselves, that they uh, need government to um, fix this. Um, and everybody who's listening right now is going to say, oh, I've I've seen a little Facebook post that says, don't get the guys who made the problem to fix the problem. If there is ever a time when that is more true, I don't know a time when that is not more true. The guys who've made the problem are really likely not the guys who are going to do a good job of fixing the problem. And so my PhD too, what's the theme of it? Oh my goodness, it is that. The wrong people are trying to fix this problem, but the the Canadian, and this is Adam, you and I, and all Canadians have to have a bit of a pause and say, Canadians have had this deep-rooted feeling that Indigenous people are not capable of doing it themselves. And that is the really, really sad part. Because that was just such an obstacle, a useless obstacle, um, a, um, a false obstacle, and um, and it still plays into today when we're working to try to change those things. Is we still need government to 
help, which is why I don't, I won't use that word for, for myself. We're not talking about help. Um, so yeah, so that, that's, uh, that is kind of the, the very, very dark and heavy side of doing this kind of work is this underpinning of, of the whole story, which is that you, Adam, and your people need the government because you, Adam, can't do it. Whoa. Well, I'm, Whoa. I'm challenging that because as the MLA, of course, like tr- try, to, try to square that round yeah. hole in a square peg or whatever, try to make that work that the MLA needs to have the Minister of Indigenous, whatever the, the latest thing is, it's called, uh, because it's, you know, in my life it's been several, called several things. We need the minister to, to own that property for me. There still is that notion in government, I run into it all the time. The the little comments and and it's inadvertent. It's it's thoughtless. They're just the words that come out of people's mouths that were conditioned. To, I mean, it, it is it is a Canadian condition that it to, is, to yeah. underestimate the ability of an indigenous community to look after itself. Yet, through the most disastrous conditions that the governments, provincial and federal, have set up, indigenous people have not only survived but we have thrived. I run into it, you know. I'll, I'll hear the comment like, uh, you know, a First Nation community or an Indigenous community wants some some land, or they want access to something, and uh, and a bureaucrat will go, "Well, what are they going to do with it?" Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I want to bring that back to housing because it it super applies. So, what will they going to? What are they going to do with it? So, what did I find out? with with all my research and living on the reserve and working in housing and building houses and teaching. I teach housing management at Vancouver Island University. So what did I find out? I found out that First Nations people have had the opportunity to house themselves taken away from them. It's a flip of what we normally as Canadians think. We normally as Canadians think that First Nations people on reserves are given houses, bad houses, but government houses, and they're given them. So that's actually false, and always has been false. Since where my research starts around the 1930s, which we can get back to, but since that time, what has happened is not that First Nations people have been given houses. It is that they have had their opportunity to house themselves legally and bureaucratically, administratively taken away from them. So uh, that is the condition that we're dealing with, is that there's, so I'm going to go back to the 30s because Canada has, and I think this is the quickest way we can kind of encapsulate this. Canada has two housing systems. And it started, it started around the 1930s. And the reason it started around the 1930s is because that Canada really didn't have much to do with houses, either on or off reserve. It was ad hoc. So the 30s, uh, shone a light on all sorts of social problems, and one of them was housing, uh, a housing crisis. Um, and Canada has, had its housing crisis, both on and off reserve. And the government saw, as did governments all over the place, the Depression as a way to uh, stimulate the, the economy, and they saw housing as a way to do that. So they that was the first time that Canada specifically got in its hands onto housing. Canada, ha- Canada has not been a, ca- a country that likes its hands on housing. 
but it did get its hands on housing in the 30s. It, uh, our first national housing acts were in the 30s, the Dominion Act and the National Housing Act. Uh, CMHC came in the early 40s. This is Canada actually actually getting in, not the free market, let's, let's be clear. The can- Canadian government got involved in mainstream housing to do se- some things, to do several things. One is to uh, make lending more available to mainstream Canadians, get more people to borrow more money, they can get better housing. So there we have that whole system uh, getting created. Oh, uh, we need better standards because our houses aren't being built to standards. So we started to get the standards in the 30s. And we also saw, as Canadians, we saw um, housing as a wealth-generating tool. And, And that's really true. So our houses as Canadians are our biggest wealth generating tool right now. We know that for sure. But it also stimulated the economy. It made jobs and whatever. So in the 30s, crisis, off reserve, um, Canada did what I just said to create the housing system that we live with in today. Um, and we are very dependent on that, that system. You need a, uh, not you, you're on the reserve, but me now, off reserve, if I, I need that lending system. I really rely on those codes, um, and and I know that my biggest wealth generating tool right now is my house. So I understand that system worked for me. It's not working so well right now, as you point out to me, but we'll talk about that later. Um, so that's the 30s. That's what Canada did, and we're living in the residue of that. That makes sense. So at the same time, there was a desperate housing problem on reserves for several reasons. One was because... The population that Canada thought was going to die away, an awful thought, didn't. And in the 30s, the indigenous population started to rise. Okay, one reason. Lots of other reasons. Housing crisis on reserve as well. Uh, The government's response to that? A welfare housing program. Now, for the Canadians or Americans listening to this, to imagine that housing can be delivered on a welfare approach to a racially-based group of people for 80 years is absurd, and we all know it's absurd, but that is what you're looking at with on-reserve housing. So that welfare system that was... Uh, and that meant a little... a little um, I call pallet, but I don't think they had pallets in those days, a little pile of lumber. It didn't mean money, never meant money, it still doesn't mean money. It means a pile of lumber. I think now it does, but it, uh, it meant a pile of lumber that was um, put together by the Indian agent uh, for you to build yourself a house. So th- line those two things up. The Canadian housing system that Canadians became dependent on, the welfare system, pile of lumber, that the First Nations on reserve, on reserve people became dependent on, And when we talk about the outcomes, let's not talk about the outcomes. Let's talk about the system that created the outcomes. So it's not surprising, is it now? And these are not interchangeable systems. I can't decide on reserve, and I tried to when I moved on in 1972. Okay, well, this system doesn't work. We can't get a house here, I said to your dad. Well, what the heck? Well, then let's go borrow money. Oh, we can't. Well, what do you do then? Uh, I said, okay, then let's get a grant because you can get a tiny bit of money from a grant. No, you can't because 
I actually have a good job, your dad says to me, and I make too much money, so we don't qualify. Only the really poor people can get that. Oh, I said, okay, then let's build our own house. How do, how do we do that? We can't get money anywhere. Oh, well, that makes no sense at all. And the other thing is, is okay, then let's move off the reserve until we, and this is your dad and me, it's not just me, it's me, though, exclaiming, like, really? Um, move off the reserve until we can get a house on the reserve. No, you can't. The houses on the reserve are only, the help, housing help is only given to people who live on the reserve, so we have to move on to the reserve. And your dad says, and I won't move into somebody's basement and raise my family in one room until there is some ability for me to get a house. This is confusing stuff. It's not for you and me because we lived with it all our life, but it's confusing stuff because Canadians can't get their heads around that there is this group of people in this country that have had their opportunities removed from them and are living under this situation. And the weird thing is the rest of us are just judging the heck out of them, looking at the housing well, system. Well, every time, every it's you know, like, it seems like every two or three years uh, a reporter you yeah. know, on a slow news week or whatever, will, you know, roll through the res with, yeah. you know, the camera out out the window and they won't even stop necessarily. Or, or maybe they will stop and find someone who will open the door and, and show them their house. But they, you know, it, it's just a remind. I, I don't know what the, what the, why they do it, but it's like, we just want to remind Canadians how good they've got it or how, or how awful, you know, yeah these indigenous people are at looking after the, this, you know, it's, it's, um, I it, call it, I call it, this might be crass, but I call it housing porn. Right. We love looking at it, but we don't do anything about it. It's something that we as Canadians have a whole history of watching, right? watching, but your sister, your youngest sister cries when she was a young girl, when she saw it on TV. Yeah. And she said, Mom, stop them from doing well, it's that. No different than stop the com- it. It's no different than the comments at the end of news stories. It's no different It's no different than any of that. It perpetuates a storyline that simply is, is only, well, it's only part of the story. And it's the part of the story that, that perpetuates the, the stereotypes the and the, the racism and all of the, all of the discrimination yeah. and the myth. The You're myth that, right. that First Nations can't do it themselves. This is proof. Here it is. And we all ingest that. Ingest we've, it. We've done such a bad job of actually having a, a full conversation and actually letting people know. As we get to, as we get towards uh, the end of this interview, I just wanted to talk a little bit about where you're, where you are yeah. now, and where you're going, because I think that it's important that in this conversation we turn the corner. Yeah, I want because the corner has turned, and we've we've only got a few minutes for this, but I want to talk about the First Nations Housing and Infrastructure Council and what you're doing there. Yeah, I want to I want to uh, turn the arc and, and head it up. Because uh, a lot of people think that we have to get rid of the Indian Act and this huge thing, nothing's going to happen with housing until that happens. Not true. The Indian Act is a ceiling and, and there's people working on changing that. But within the system as it is and as it always has been, there has been a way to change it. And first of all, First Nations across the country are struggling and First Nations are working on fixing within the system their housing uh, situation. And lots of them are pulling it together themselves. I teach these housing housing managers from across the country. They are astounding people that are turning the corner because there is nowhere in this country where social activism isn't more effective than on First Nations. Well, there isn't. Just really very quickly, the... 
indigenous leaders are some of the most powerful they leaders are. that we have in our country because no leader is given less to work with. Than yes. that, than and that a bigger leader. problem. Same with housing managers. So there's an upward arc on this thing. That's not to say that housing all over the place is not still a problem and that the structure is a problem. But there is an, there's a, a movement, and it's a, a powerful movement on reserve. And I am optimistic uh, because of this powerful movement and because of all the housing champions across the country that are working in their First Nations for their people. It's amazing. And it's a really exciting. You'd think I was depressed writing about it, but not working in the field right now. It is the, it's an effervescent field right now. Uh, but So the, uh, the HIC, which is the Housing and Infrastructure Council that I work with, uh, right now in, in British Columbia with a bunch of uh, incredible housing people from across the uh, province is working towards a transfer. Okay, Adam, is there one problem with housing on reserve? Yes. I would say no before, but now I say yes. The one problem is government is not the place to go for the answers. Well, it's actually governance of housing. Right. Governance, but it, government is not where you're going to find the answer. Right. Government needs to get out of First Nations housing. It needs to get out, and it needs to get out now. And I get to uh, work with a group of amazing people who are working with government, and government is talking about getting out, of, of delivering this service. Um, and that's what the Housing and Infrastructure Council is talking about. And that doesn't mean taking it over and running everybody's housing. It means creating a system so that people can run their own housing. Because you know what happens if from my research when you give First Nations people the opportunity to do their own housing? They do it. And you know what else? They do a good job of it. That shouldn't be surprising, but they do. And that is the answer for Canada. And I actually am the most privileged person because I'm, I actually get to work on that project, uh, hard as it is. It's an amazing project. Well, we've been we've been playing around with housing on reserve uh, on our three quarter acre lot. <laughs> it's been this constant evolution, and one of the things that I'm going to do later this summer, we've got a pizza oven on our property, and I'm going to invite as many of the local government officials, uh, elected mayors, councillors, etc., to a pizza party this summer, uh, and just show them where I live, and just show them how we live, and just show them how what it ends up being a mostly deregulated environment creates space for families to be able to house themselves. And we've got just this amazing, comp we call it the Olson compound. You're very familiar with it. You started it, in fact. In fact, the original trailer that you finally were able to, you know, get the money for to drag onto that property back in the Your early 1970s. Your dad built, built absolutely everything on that property himself, and, and everything. It and, and it's still there. And, and yes. Emily and I built a house at the back. So our goal is to invite the local decision makers there because where we're going with this, and this is just the first of a, probably a few conversations that you and I are going to have about this because people are very interested about this subject we can go maybe in detail the next time with the, with the, is that the creativity that is allowed on the reserve is, is a huge deal for us. It's a wonderful message to Canadians. Um, and I started out with, that's why I'm in this. But the wonderful message to Canadians is, yes, on reserve housing is all that that you have seen. But it is also an amazing place to go to find 
um, opportunities or, or not opportunities to find um, examples of things we can do all over the country to fix housing. On reserve housing, talking about flipping it on its head, on reserve housing can be a leader in housing in this country. So tell me, how can people get a hold of you if they want to talk to you more about uh, this? Anybody can get a hold of me, as you probably can tell from this conversation. I'm quite willing to talk. Um, my um, uh, Facebook, I'm on Facebook, Sylvia yep. Olson, that's fine. And I have an email. I'm fine with um, people emailing me. It is yetsa, Y-E-T-S-A, at shaw.ca. Um, yetsa, Y-E-T-S-A. Fine. I'm, I'll be quite happy to talk to people. Awesome. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Public Circle Podcast. I'm Adam Olson. I'm the host, producer, and member of the British Columbia Legislative Assembly for Saanich North in the Islands. For more information and to contact Sylvia, please check out the show notes for this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it and subscribe to the Public Circle Podcast. If you have any questions or comments for me, please email me at adam.olson.mla at leg.bc.ca. Finally, I blog every day about my experience as an MLA, I invite you to check out my blog at adamolsonmla.ca. Until next time, hi, Equa.